Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 182 of the 60 Music Podcast Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to part two of episode number 182 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or in Stitcher, or in iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is I'm to give you a description of what the show's all about? Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 26-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. In interview with this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the show in two parts. First part, so I talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks into my own personality on the original song, which will include the chords, melody, lyrics. And second part, I show deep, deep into the history behind that track. And that part, I show talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, what studio the song was recorded at, talk about the session musicians that played in the song, talk about the songwriters that wrote the song, the producer that produced it, and the history behind the song was recorded, what studio the song was recorded at, the history behind the songwriters that wrote the song, the producer that produced it, artists that recorded it, and there were the band members that played, or the band members that played on it, or the band member, the group, the history behind the band that recorded it, and the peak, peak position of the song we have for Rosalie and Billboard Hot 100 Charts first came out in the year and month the song was released. All that is in the second part of the show. Moving on, let's talk about the his- history behind last week's song and the ar- and the artist that recorded it, which was the Devels. But more importantly, let's talk about the history behind the label the song was released on and just give a little preface on the history behind this particular record company and the people that were involved in it and sort of talk about uh, the makings of the, the record company that made this song a hit. Because I want to preface something here with you guys about, um, you know, just the differences between today's music industry and right now. And one thing I will say is that um, the one of the biggest differences with the music industry of the 60s and the music industry of now is that back in the 60s, you know, just like now, anybody can st- can start a record company. I mean, that's just people. People did it back then, and you know, people still do it now. I mean, you know, there were there are a lot of independent record companies like Kama Sutra or Musicore, uh, you know, uh, Liberty. Um, I mean, there were so many different, uh, just small little independent record companies like Roulette Records. Um, you know, there were, there were so many different small, uh, independent record companies. One, an- another record company from Philadelphia called Arctic Records, a very small independent record company. But the point I'm trying to make here is that anybody could start a record company back then. And there were a lot of small mom and pop record companies back then. And just like how it is today where, you know, we anybody can start their own label. Heck, if you sign up for a DistroKid account, you can basically be your own label and distribute distribute your own music, do everything yourself. But the big difference between then and now is that it is so hard for people who are who 
are their own labels that have massive success on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. I mean, everything here on the Billboard Hot 100 charts today all comes from what is left of the major labels. The major labels control the Billboard Hot 100 charts. And that's just how it is today. I mean, any song that you, that you, that you hear you know, becoming viral on TikTok, any song that is a viral TikTok hit comes from what is left of the major labels. I mean, there's that, there's that, there's that song about damn time by Lizzo. That's that's a major label song. It's from Atlantic Records. So, it's really really hard for independent artists who are on their own labels to do to to basically match the success of the other artists coming from the major labels. But back then it was totally different. Because back then, you could start your own record company and have it be totally independent, mom and pop. You know, you, you register with the county clerk and say you're doing business as, and you create like a, like a, like a name for your business, and you register it with the city. And, you know, you, you, know, you have a little office. You can, and basically, you can just you can go the DIY route. And it was so much harder back then because back then, like, distribution was so much more difficult because... You know, th- nowadays you just pay like DistroKid and you get your stuff in all the streaming platforms. Back then, you had to work with, you know, major, you know, vinyl distribution plants and pressing plants. And you had to make sure that you had enough money to pay for the cost of distribution. And then, you know, just ma- and you had to make sure that the record was made the charts. That way you can break even from the cost of money that you spent paying for physical distribution of the singles because that's all there was back then there was no such thing as the digital distribution thing like how there is now back then it was all about physical distribution and getting your songs in the radio so you know it was a lot harder to do the distribution thing back then but that didn't mean it was impossible for the small little independent label started by you know regular people like producers and songwriters that didn't that doesn't doesn't mean that they were that they were excluded from having major success. I mean, Lori Records is a great example. I mean, Bob and Gene Schwartz started the label and they were just normal dudes and and they had massive success with the record company. I mean, you know, it was it was possible for for you for the small people to start their own re- record labels and have massive success back in the 60s and have the same success as the major corporate labels like Columbia, RCA, and Atlantic. But now it's totally different. Now it's like you have everybody, the, the small, you have the your average Joe, you know, paying for a district kid membership and getting their songs up on all the streaming platforms, and then you have the major labels. And it's hard for the average Joe to compete on the same label as the major, the major com- record companies that are... And it's in saying record company now doesn't even make any sense because, you know, we we're not buying physical records now. It's mostly digital. It's mostly, you know, whatever streaming platform you have, you know, you create an account, you pay for the subscription fee and you get access to your music. I mean, that's just how it is now. Um, back then it was like the, the, the record, the act of like physically printing a 45 RPM single or a vinyls, a vinyl, uh, you know, uh, LP. I mean, that's just, that's just how it was back then. I mean, there, there, there was such thing as an active record company that paid for the cost of the recording and made artists recoup their, their, their advance that they paid to them through record sales. I mean, that, 
I mean, that was that there was such such a thing as that back then. Now it's completely different. But you know, it's just it's just interesting comparing how things were like back then and now. How independent record companies were so huge, and anybody could start a record company, have massive success. Whereas now, anybody with a DistroKid music with DistroKid account or CD Baby, TuneCore, whatever, can just distribute over they whatever kind of music they want, and you know, it could just not do anything because there's such a huge massive saturation of music being released through the digital platforms through rec through distribution companies like district kids cd baby two core you know there's just a huge you know saturation of that you know and there was back then too i mean there were a lot of different rec companies i mean there were 500 singles being being sent to the djs every single week you know from all kinds of record companies um you know but the fact of the matter is, is that only, you know, there was only 100 songs, the Billboard Album 100, and it's like that right now. So, I mean, you know, the, the competition was tough back then, and it's still kind of tough today. But it was definitely easier for smaller people to have mass success with the, the smaller record companies, you know, the ind independents. But now it's really hard. Um, but yeah, so that's just kind of difference between then and now. Let's talk about Cameo Parkway for a minute and the people behind it, you know, so. Okay, so I think probably the most interesting thing about Cameo Parkway as a record company, first of all, it started out as a record label called Cameo Records. It was actually two different record companies at the time. You had Cameo Records and Parkway Records, two different record, record labels. The first one was Cameo Records, which was started by Bernie Lowe and Calman, and then eventually they formed Parkway. And it was two different labels, and they had two different sets of artists. But I think probably the inter most interesting thing about Cameo Parkway is that the label was started by very much older adults. Um, you know, every the, the three guys who basically created the label, which are uh, Dave Appel, Cal Mann, and Bernie Lowe, those are the, the, the main guys on Cameo Parkway. They were all in their 40s at this point, in the, in the, in the 50s. I mean, they were much older. They were, they were like in the age range of the people who were not very keen about rock and roll. I mean, the, the record company Cameo Parkway was started by a bunch of old guys who were, who, who other people in the, and who were in the same age as them were not fans of rock and roll at all. I mean, they really didn't like it. So it's interesting how the record company wasn't started by a bunch of young hotshots who were all crazy about rock and roll music. It was started by a bunch of old dudes who like I'm pretty sure they're friends who are the same age as them like what are you doing guys like I hate this shit why are you guys trying to start a record company and p put out this kind of music it sucks I hate it and you know it's in so interesting sort of the the generation gap you know that was happening at that point between the parents of the kids who bought rock and roll and the teenagers are buying rock and roll i mean but these these guys actually did a good job of bridging the gap just like how i'm trying to do with my podcast i'm trying to bridge the gap between your parents you know who obviously listen to this music and the younger people you know who want to, want to be more aware of this music there was you know and these and these guys at cameo parkway basically did that um you know, and just just to let you know, so Bernie Lowe was the was a musician. He was a he was a songwriter, and Cal Mann was the lyricist. And uh, and basically, what happened was that uh, they were you know they, they that started out as both of those people 
sort of coming together and deciding, hey, you know what, let's start our own record company because it's way more profitable than being a songwriter because as a, a songwriters, all we get is the publishing, you know, our ASCAP BMI money. But if we if we start our own record company, we can own our own masters and we can make so much more money than just the songwriting end of it. And they kind of learned from that because Bernie Lowe and Cal Mann, their first hit as a songwriter at this point in 1956 was a song called Let Me Be Your Teddy Bear by Elvis. So they kind of they kind of were getting a first taste of, OK, maybe we should own our own masters as well as writing songs, because the songwriting thing, it's uh, it's 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 OK. But I feel like we could probably do better. And I think the way we, we can do it is that, um, you know, we could essentially, you know, own our own masters and start our own record company. So that's kind of what they did. So basically, um, you know, he, he bar Bernie Lowe borrowed some cash from, you know, to start his own company, Cameo Records, uh, you know, which he first ran out of his basement in his home in, in Topol Hogan Street. And basically, uh, you know, uh, it was, you know, and, he, and at that before that, um, Cal Mann was essentially uh, a comedian, you know, basically doing like stand up comedy stuff. He decided he wanted to give that up, and he decided to join, uh, you know, Bernie Lowe's new record company. And basically, uh, what happened was that after five uh, records that didn't make the charts, they finally hit a big in, in 1957 with their 645 release called Butterfly. And basically, you know, Bernie Lowe and Calman wrote this song, and it was sung by a guy named Charlie Gracie. And he was from South Philadelphia. And that, by the way, that's where, that's the the where w the the company of Cameo Parkway was established in nineteen uh, in nineteen fifties, and it was done in Philadelphia. And that actually became the first number one record for Cameo Parkway. And basically, the and the way and the way that this worked was that. Um, uh, you know, Cal Mann was the lyricist, right? He he was the guy who wrote the words, and Bernie Lowe was the music guy. So that was the sort of the team that created, uh, you know, the the sound, you know, the what what was the music that was coming out of Cameo Parkway Records at this point in the late fifties. And I'm and it's it's not exa I'm not exactly sure exactly where they came up with the name Cameo Records, because there was a record company. That came out in the 1920s and 30s, and they were called Cameo Records. But I'm not exactly sure uh, where they got that name from. But basically, what happened was that uh, you know there there is there is the, the name actually had kind of a connection between uh, the Cameo bed deck jewelry depicted in their respected logos. So it's possible that that could have been where they got the name from. But basically, uh, you know. Lynn Lowe Jacobs, who was basically a speech consultant, uh, you know, s said that Bernie's old friend, Sol Volchok, was the one who suggested the name. So basically, uh, th it started out with a cameo record, cameo record company, and then it became Parkway Records. And then that's basically when they when they kind of when the two labels kind of merge as Cameo Parkway. They needed to find somebody else to sort of carry, sort of lift sort of the heavy load, carry, carry some of the heavy load as far as the 
productions and the arrangements and the and the more the musical end of it because Bernie Lowe was kind of getting tired of just you know doing more doing all the heavy lifting as far as the music is concerned and Cal Man was just a lyricist he didn't really really wasn't keen on the music end so they found a guy named Dave Appel who was actually his name is pronounced Apple but you know it's it sounds like Appel but yeah Dave Apple was essentially he was a very invaluable addition to staff. And, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, uh, Cal Mann and Lowe and another and, and, and basically the other the other guy from Philadelphia, Dave, Dave Apple, uh, basically created the team that became known as Cameo Parkway. And what happened was that Dave Apple had his own group called the Applejacks. And what happened was that, you know, he brought in Dave Appel actually brought in the musicians who later became the core group of session musicians for Cameo Parkway. He was the guy who brought those, brought those people in. And he became the director of A&R, Artists and Repertoire. And he became the guy who basically, uh, you know, he learned how to engineer, mix, and produce records. And he was the one uh, who brought in the musicians, the background singers, and the new artists. So he was kind of the, he was the A&R guy for the record company. Um, you know, so he was the guy who was in charge of discovering new talent. And this is kind of a thing that is really not around too much these days. I mean, most record companies are more interested in art developed artists that already have a huge following. So it's hard to get uh, record companies now to be interested in little known artists. So that's kind of interesting. That's kind of where they were at uh, back then. You know, so what happened was that, uh, you know, uh, basically, you know, Barney and Cal were writing a bunch of songs together. But then when uh, when what happened was that when, when Barney kind of got dropped out of, uh, you know, doing the more creative stuff and he wanted more focus, focus on, the, on, the mu- on the business end of things, uh, that's when that's when Cal Mann, who was just a lyricist, he was a tone deaf guy. That's when he brought the, the 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 musical responsibilities of Dave Apple, and basically, you know that that w- and that was the hit team of Cameo Parkway, and it was is a Dave Appel, Cal Dave Apple, Cal Mann, and Bernie Lowe. That was that was what was going on with uh, with Cameo Parkway at that time. Those were the main guys, and. Um, and they also had, you know, and you know, here's the thing. So there's so many similarities between Cameo Parkway and Motown. It's not even funny. Motown was founded by Barry Gordy, who was the head of the company. He, you know, started the company from a place and, you know, made it massively successful. And same thing with Cameo Parkway. Cameo Parkway was a company founded by three guys. And, you know, and it's funny, like, this is sort of like the small business story of, the typical small business story of it blowing up and becoming a massive success. It's so it's no different with the music industry at this point in the sixties. I mean, it was, it was a very similar thing of just a business started by three people and it became a massive success. I mean, I mean, it's just that you hear that story time and time again, even outside of the music industry. And, and it's just, and this is a good example of that. Um, it's definitely a lot harder now if you're kind of just doing your own thing and your own being your own label, but, I mean, that's just, but things were a lot different back then because um, artists didn't even think to be their own record companies at that point. 
Uh, they were just like, okay, we're going to get signed to this record company and they're going to allow us to record these songs and then they're going to release and they'll see what happens. I mean, that's kind of the mentality of most, what most artists are experiencing that time. So let's, now I'm going to talk about a little bit more why Cameo Parkway was such a big success. Okay, so we all can kind of figure out why Motown was such a huge success. Um, you know, it's just, you know, it was just a lot of hard work went into the promotion of those records and getting them airplay on this on you know the, the local Detroit stations like CKLW and CKY but why Cameo Parkway was such a huge success it all really had to do with something else that wasn't them but this was this had a lot to do with their massive commercial success and it was it was something that is like now it's the equivalent of getting your song on uh, a major Spotify editorial playlist or, you know, bunch of songs on a Spotify editorial playlist and having the songs stay on for a while and then getting over a million streams. And this is kind of like the 60s equivalent of that. Um, and that is, is that in the 1950s, there was this uh, radio show called Bob Horn's Bandstand. And Bob Horn was the original host of the show. Bob Horn got fired in 1955-56 because he uh, got a DUI and he got arrested and got in trouble and they just fired him. Uh, the producers of the show just fired him. So they found another young guy who was not necessarily young. He was a little older, but he was in his 20s, and but he looked young enough to where the teenagers could probably relate to him. Uh, and he, he felt like, okay, you know, for this, for the market that these, that the, that the, that the rock and roll records are in, for the teenagers, the young kids who are buying these songs, who are buying these 45 RPM singles, this is a guy that probably be able to relate to it pretty well. His name was Dick Clark. And they hired him, he was like 26 years old, and he became the host of this new, sh he renamed the show and called it American Bandstand. At the time, American Bandstand was based in Philadelphia. Well, guess what? Cameo Parkway Records was based out of Philadelphia. So because of the convenience of how one of the most major uh, music television shows at that point in the late 50s, early 60s, and it was kind of like visual radio because you heard these songs you know, on, on TV, like the Bandstand kid, and you also saw the, the kids on American Bandstand dancing to these songs. So you kind of heard, I got a visual idea of like, when you watch a lot of those bandstand clips, it's a lot like seeing, like imagine if you were at a sock hop back in the late 50s, early 60s, and you were seeing kids dance these records, and you were going to, it was like going to high school gymnasium. It's the whole grease, you know, uh, hairspray kind of a thing. That was what was happening at this point, late 50s, early 60s. And, uh, you know, an American bandstand was arguably the, the biggest television show that was, so successful with trying to uh, basically um, create this avenue, this platform where these these record companies could have a place where their music could be promoted and it could reach massive, massive, massive amounts of people and it could be heard coast to coast everywhere and it could be it could be such a huge success because I think American Bandstand reached quite a lot of markets at that point in the late 50s, early 60s. I mean, they were huge. I mean, it wasn't just in Philadelphia, but it was other places too. But, I mean, that was just, it was a, such a huge, massively 
successful uh, local television show where they, you know, we, we heard, um, you know, records that were, you know, basically, um, you know, climbing the charts and becoming massive success. Because if you think about it, the reason why all those songs were massive hits back then was all because of the record buying public, the kids that were going to the stores and buying 45s and saying, I like this, I want to get this played. I mean, that's a lot of times it was either that or DJs being like, you know what, this looks cool, I'll play it on my station. So that's the reason why most records back then were successful. It was the DJs listening to the songs beforehand and saying, I want to play this on the radio or taking a chance on something they don't even know. Or the kids listening to buying these records and be like, or they, they, they look at a 45 and look at the title and they look at the artist and be like, you know what, this looks cool, I'll buy it and I'll take it home. And then they listen to it and then basically hear it and like, oh my God, I want to hear this on the radio. So they would call and request it. And that was this journey of how so many hit songs started after they got released and recorded. So that was that was sort of the, the journey of how many hit songs really took. And basically, since Cameo Parkway was right in Philadelphia, um, you know, they you know, they had a really good relationship. Uh, you know, and, and every, all the artists that were on Cameo Parkway were basically available to show up and perform on American Bandstand and lick swing their latest hit single. So that's how easy these guys had it with, with, uh, with, with promotion for their records back then. And, you know, uh, you know, the other Philadelphia labels like Swan and Shankler. Now, Swan was an independent label at that point in the 60s. They had Freddie Canyon, Dick and the Dotes, and they had early, uh, pressings of the Beatles. That's so true. Yeah, they were on Swan before they went over the Capitol. And, uh, and you know, Chancellor too. You had Claudine Clark and Fabian and Frankie Avalon. Um, but most of those, 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 those artists went to New York to record. They didn't really stay in Philadelphia. But basically, um, you know, it's the thing is, is that Cameo Parkway's success was so dependent on American Bandstand. It's hard to say where where would they be at now? I don't even know if I'd be even talking, talking to you about them right now if it wasn't for American Bandstand. I mean, there was, there was, they were so successful at this point in the game because of American Bandstand. And a lot of music industry success stories are always because of something else other than the artist or the producer or the songwriter. There's always an outside source sort of creating the, the magic and making it, making the success happen for them. It's never because of them themselves. It's always because of something else. So, and that's why it's kind of hard in the music industry because, you know, it's a lot of things are just out of our hands. We can't, they're the gatekeepers that sort of make things happen for us that we don't, we don't, that's out of our world. We're just creators. But it was, it was really no different back then, except, you know, nowadays the gatekeepers are more like music supervisors and, you know, you know, people create curate these Spotify editorial playlists. Back then, it was the DJs. It was you know the you know the radio the heads of disc jockeys or the radio stations, the pro program directors at radio stations, and also the people playing songs on shows like American Bandstand, hosted by Dick Clark. So there was a, you know, there was some um, there was definitely correlation back then versus today. But now I'm going to talk about uh, the, the some of the behind the scenes and the people that were more involved in the in the making of these records. So the house band at Cameo Parkway, because here's here's the other similarity between Cameo Parkway and Motown Records, is that they had you know Motown had a house band with the Funk Brothers. Well, guess what? 
Cameo Parkway also had a moats had a house band. I mean, they had, you know, they were they were you know under contract with, uh, the the musicians on Cameo Parkway were under contract with Cameo Parkway, so there were a lot of the sessions that were for Cameo Parkway were were non-union. You know, I mean, they were basically, uh, you know, uh, they were essentially the the guys that, um. The, the musicians that played for Cameo Parkway were essentially the same guys that uh, that played for all the hits. I mean, they all had one group of studio musicians that basically, uh, you know, took over as the main group of guys, um, you know, who played on all the hit records. And uh, essentially what happened was that you had these were these were the main guys that were on uh, the the records for Camion Parkway, and the, again it was just like just like Motown, same same thing, non-union uh, recording sessions. Guys probably got pla- got played paid under the table, and you know these were these were guys that were the house band at Camion Parkway. Um, it consisted of the the guitar the guitar the main guitar players were uh, Joe Macko and Joe Segro. Those are the main guitar players, and Bob McGraw. I'm sorry. Um, so Joe Segro and Joe Renzetti were the main guitar players. Those are the main guys who play guitar. Bob McGraw and Joe Macko were the bass players. Um, drummer. It was always either Ellis Tolan or Bobby Gregg. Those are the two players that they used on all the sessions. Piano players were either. Fred Bender, Roy Stragus, or Jimmy Wisner. Those are the th- the three main guys that they used on all the hits. It was the, the keyword all the keyboard parts were either Fred Bender, Roy Stragus, or Jimmy Wisner. Those are the three players that they used on all the hits. Again, it was it was um Joe Macko and Bob McGraw playing bass, uh Joe Renzetti and Joe Segro on guitar, Ellis Toll and Bobby Gregg on drums. Or uh, Fred Better, Roy Stragus, and Jimmy Wizard playing the keys. They, the guys, these these guys did organ and piano. Now the other sort of essential ingredients to uh, Cameo Parkway was the saxophone, and the saxophone was a very very important part of their sound. And they used a bunch of saxophone players. Well, they used like two or three guys, and these were the main guys who were. Uh, essentially, the the main saxophone players. You had Dan Daly, Fred Nizzullo, um Buddy Savitt, and George Young. Those are the four main guys that they used in all the hits. Uh, Buddy Savitt was the guy who did most of the most of the solos on those records. He's probably playing the solo in last week's song. Can't sit down. But you also had Dan Daly, Fred Nizzullo, and George Young, and th- those are the those are the four four guys who played on. All the big Cameo Parkway hits, and one interesting thing about Cameo Parkway, I think this 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 thing that might have influenced Phil Spector, is that on er, on those some of those early records that had uh you know like Swing and School and uh you know um, Wild One like the songs like that you hear the honking you know saxophone sound, that probably also influenced Phil Spector who probably took a lot of that and utilized it for his sound for the Phil Spector Wall sound, but. Also, I should probably say, like, you know, who, who, um, who are some of the Cameo Parkway artists? Um, you know, good examples: Chubby Checker and Bob Wardell, two of the biggest-selling artists on Cameo Parkway. So many hits on on the on that label. 
um, you know, and the groups, the vocal groups, the, the two the, the hottest selling vocal groups were the Orlans and the Devels. Um, Devels were a white group from, you know, again, from Pennsylvania. They, that's where they're from. And they got signed to the, to the record company in like 1961. And their first big hit was a song, again, Calman and Bernie Lowe wrote it, the Bristol Stomp big hit it was actually about a a, a a dance that was breaking out from bristol pennsylvania that's what that song was about and uh yeah i mean you know the orlans the wawa Tusi again calman and bernie Lowe, and then you know david pell and calman wrote the other songs like south street and uh you know uh, all, a lot of their other hits Manalower, the main songwriting team on those records um but yeah i mean yeah, the other thing to keep in mind about Cameo Parkway is that a lot of they, they kind of latched on to this very specific niche and they had a lot of success with it. What they did is that they basically they latched on to the niche of uh, party dance records. That's what they were well most well known for. Every single song they put out was all about something about party, partying, dancing. You know the kids, you know, going crazy about girls. I mean, that's kind of what their thing was. And there were also some instances where they might have stole from other artists, or they, they, you know, they, they, they work, they, they did some songs that might have been similar to other songs. Like for the example, there was a Chubby Checker single called "Dancing Party," which has a lot of the same chords as Quarter Three by Gary O. Spons. And then also. Um, another Chubby Checker song that had similarities to an earlier song that a lot of people know about, uh, It's Limbo Rock, It was that was originally Monotonizality, which was recorded by Billy Strange and the Champs in 1962. So that was an early example of, you know, and, and that and that that song later became Limbo Rock. So they, they, they the thing is about Cameo Parkway is that, you know, a lot of their songs were originally something else before, and they kind of changed them, kind of rewrote them, and did something. So they kind of beefed them up and changed them into something that which became later well known for. And as ex- as the case with this song, because this song was originally uh, not, uh, it was it didn't have lyrics. It was actually an instrumental song. And I'm gonna play for you sort of exactly what the song sounded like when it started out as an instrumental. And then I'm gonna show you, and then you know you can l- listen to last week's song. And you can figure out where the song kind of came from but this was an instrumental song there were no you know lyrics to this and cal man later went on to write lyrics for it and then it was written by a couple people um phil upchurch was one of the main principal songwriters for this song and by the way if you're wondering where they recorded a lot of their stuff um you know originally they they had a they had a studio called they had their own recording studio camera parkway studios and then they moved into another recording studio in Philadelphia called Rico Art Studios. And these were all very small, tiny recording studios, not, not too much happening as far as being able to fit a big orchestra in there. But what they did do is that if they needed something, a big orchestra, they took the two-hour bus ride to get to New York, and they went through and they recorded there using New York session musicians if, if they needed to. Um, you know, because New York was just a hop, skip, and jump away from Philadelphia, and still is today. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically the song, Last Week You Can't Sit Down, it was an instrumental song first. It was the first time of the Bim Bam Boos. And uh, Cornell Muldrow co-wrote the song with D. Clark. But I think I think that uh, that um, Phil Upchurch had a lot to, to had a lot to do with uh, 
writing the song too because he played guitar in the original version and he recorded it again as the Phil Upchurch comma. Let's hear a little bit of that and see what that sounds like. that's the thing so that kind of brings back brings me back to a point i made earlier last week on my podcast you know the original didn't even have words i mean it was basically just like you know uh that's the thing so a lot of these dance records it's like who needs words you don't really need words in dance music you just need music because at this point, like when people are dancing, they're not thinking about what's going on lyrically with the song. They're just dancing. They're having fun. So there's no need for words with dance music. And this is a really good example of that because the song, you know, was just an instrumental song originally. And then Caliban wrote lyrics to it. And then Bernie Lowe, uh, you know, uh, uh, David Pell arranged the record and produced it. And, uh, you know, and Bernie Lowe, you know, you know, did uh, was still pretty much involved in the Cameo Parkway, uh, you know, record company at this point. Um, but this was like, this was their, this was actually their, their second big hit. Because um, their, their first big hit, yeah, like, during Brain Low produced it, and uh, executive producer David Pell arranged it, and David Bell Calman produced it, and it was recorded in February, March of 63 at Cameo Parkway Studio and Rico Arts Recording Studio in Philadelphia. And by the way, for those of you who don't know, Rico Arts Studios, which was located on 12th Street in Philadelphia, was actually a, a song of a studio that later go on to basically uh, become uh, Sigma Sound Studios in late, later, in the, later on in the 60s. So... Um, Basically, yeah. So this is, you know, David Pell arranged the record and it was recorded in February, March 1963. And uh, yeah, I mean, also a f- couple footnotes. So the, the lead singer on You Can't Sit Down on the, on, on the, the Vells version was a guy named Len Berry. And, uh, you know, there was there was a, there was a bunch of other people in the group and they were all from, you know, a, a section of uh, Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, that, you know, they all kind of grew. Arnie Silver was one of the original members of the group. And he, I believe he's still alive. And the other people included Jerry Gross, Lee Borsov, Mike Frieda, Jim Mealy. And they were all, uh, you know, basically from Philadelphia. And they it came from Overbrook High School, which is the same high school that the Orlons actually came from. So uh, they picked up a couple groups from uh, Overbrook High School and... You know, they 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 basically nurtured them and signed them to Cameo Parkway. And uh, you know, the first hit, uh, the Bristol Stomp again. Calman Bernie Lowe wrote it, and uh, you know, again, there you know that's the the majority of the hits that were came out in Cameo Parkway. And also, like speaking of uh, you know Cameo Parkway, kind of stealing from other artists, they actually stole from Motown too because Mashed Potato Time with Didi Sharp had a lot of musical similarities with Please Mr. Postman and they actually put down the writing credits for both for that song uh you know for that so- for uh for Mash Potato Time just so that way they wouldn't get sued so they did kind of steal from other artists and you know and as you can see the song was 
Cancer Down was based off of an instrumental song. And it got recorded again by you know, Phil Up Church Combo, but it's the same record, basically. So I don't not sure if I want to use a clip of that, but it's the exact same song. Um, you know, but yeah, so that's kind of interesting um, how a lot of certain Cameo Parkway records kind of evolve from other songs. And, uh, you know, um, you know, like The Twist, for instance. The Twist was originally recorded by Hank Ballard and Midnighters. And The Twist was based off a bunch of other rhythm and blues records, too. So, um, you know, it was like, and, you know, basically, you know, the, the Chubby Checker version, which was a number one hit twice, which is crazy. Like, Cameo Parkway was the first record company to have a number one hit record twice with the exact same song, if you can believe that. Twist was number one in, uh, in 1960, 1960, and then it became number one again in 1962, and it was the same damn song. And basically, it was originally recorded by Hank Ballard and Midnighters, and Hank Ballard wrote it too. And the Chubby Checker version is a carbon copy of the Hank Ballard and Midnighters version. It's the exact same song. And it's crazy how they just re recorded and had a huge hit with it. And, uh, I mean, I'm not even sure if they even acknowledge that Hank Ballard wrote this song. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there were a couple Cameo Parkway records that, or quite a few that kind of, kind of stealing from other artists, you know, I mean, uh, Slow Twistin', which is a duet hit for Chubby Chucker and Dee Sharp, kind of sounded like Oop Oop Doo by Jesse Hill, which was an earlier record, which was an earlier record, so, I mean, they were, they were definitely pulling from some other things, but, uh, So Much In Love by The Times was one of their biggest hits in 63, and that had a very completely different sound because it was a doo-wop love song which is not typical of what Cameron Parker was doing at that point it's one of my favorite releases by them actually I might do them might do that song when I cover Cameron Parkway again some other time but yeah so um before I end this podcast I wanted to talk about sort of what happened that killed the success of Cameo Parkway and there there were two major things that unfortunately killed the success of the label and this was after they had all the massive hits with Bobby Rodella cha 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 Valari, um, I'll Never Dance Again, um, you know, all the big hits for Bobby Riddell, Wild Wood Days, which is Wild in New Jersey, and, uh, you know, all the Chubby Checker hits like The Fly, um, you know, Limbo Rock, uh, you know, uh, Hey Boob and Needle, all the, all the big Chubby Checker hits, um, you know, Hooka Tucka, I mean, like Lottie Lowe, um, all, all, all the big, all at, this is after all they had those big hits, and the Orlans too, with Not Me, and the Wawa Tusi, and, uh, Crossfire, and, uh, Don't Hang Up, and South Street, all those big, uh, after they had all those big hits with those big artists, and by the way, Rosetta Hightower is the lead singer for the Orlans too, uh, she was the lead singer of that group, and then Dee Dee Sharp with Mashed Potato Time, and Ride, and, Great for mashed potatoes and all those, all those, all those big hit songs and do the bird. I mean, after they had all those hits between the years nineteen sixty to sixty three, the biggest there were two big killers to the to the to the Cameo Parkway success. One of them was the was the British invasion, which unfortunately didn't number on them because they could not keep up and compete with the British invasion acts. Things completely changed 100%. I mean, people were not really interested in the vocal group do Teen Idol thing anymore. They wanted the full band thing, and they just couldn't keep up with them. I mean, they picked up the Kinks, one of their first singles released in America. They picked American Distribution up by the Kinks in 64 worth Long Tall Sally, but, I mean, it just wasn't working out for them. You know, and the, the British Invasion was just really doing a number on their success. And Philadelphia and Kem... Uh, uh, American Bandstand actually left Philadelphia in 64, in the beginning of 64, and they moved to L.A. 
So there goes all their their main sources of promotion for their records. You know, Philadelphia left. I mean, Kenny, <laughs> Dick Clark's American Bandstand moved his show to L.A. and they uh, they lost their main source of promotion. And by the way, if you want to see clips of American Bandstand, most of the surviving footage of it comes from when they moved out to L.A. and which is early in '64. So, you know, they you know they lost their main source of promotion and. That was basically it for them. They kind of got, they, you know, they just they 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 exhausted. They were really they were really doing bad, really bad at this point in 1964-65. So, you know, they sold portion of their company. You know, uh, Bernie Lowe, all the the f- the three main guys were came in Parkway kind of quit in like June of 65, and then the por- this company was sold to Neil Bogart, who took it over. And you know they had a, they had survived a little bit more with the the acquiring of ninety six tears by question mark and Mysterians, which came with the Bagogo label and uh, out of Michigan, and that was number one hit in nineteen sixty six. But um, they were they were struggling at this point in the sixties, and you know Motown Motown was really having a difficult time. I mean, sorry, Mot- they were having also a difficult time competing with Motown because Motown was having massive success at this point in the 60s and 64, 65, and then just had a hard time competing with them because I think that, um, you know, the, the sound of... the the I talked about this before last week. Phil, the, the Cameo Parkway records featured references to the East Coast. Uh, they had South Street by the Orlon, which was about South Street in Philadelphia, and they had Wildwood Days by Bobby Riddell, which is a reference to Wild New Jersey, and there were other things through the Bristol Stomp by the Develops, which was based off the dance and came out of Bristol, Pennsylvania, so... You know, the, a lot of those Cameo Parkway records had references to the East Coast, and people and other other people in other parts of the country weren't really getting that. So um, it's just one of those things where it's like they unfortunately just couldn't keep up with the 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 uh, the the sort of universal appeal that these Motown records are having. How they weren't really tied down in one specific state or in one specific regional area. Um, they could be about those records could be about anything and they could be relatable to people all across the country, which is kind of interesting to think about because the surf sound in L.A. with the Beach Boys and Jane Dean, that was very regional. But that was but that was pretty they were still having pretty big success even after the Beatles. So it's kind of interesting how they kept going. But Camden Parkway couldn't. And, and they kind of knew this, too, because Bobby Rydell um, recorded something in 1963 in England, which is actually, check this out, Bobby Riddell recorded Forget Him in England, right? In 1963. It was released in England first, and it was a very big hit in England. The Beatles heard that and said, you know what? Let's write an answer record to uh, Forget Him, and that song was called She Loves You. Um, yeah, so that's something, um, you know, uh, I wanted to uh, address, you, address that to you. So, yeah. But, yeah, so, I mean, you know, again, uh, you know, it's it's the the Cameo Parkway just unfortunately couldn't compete with Motown, and if you think about it, what happened with these guys after they left the record company? Well, uh, David Pell later went on to team up with the Tokens in New York, and he produced Tony Land on Don hits, and then some of the guys in the Cameo Parkway band left left and became and became New York Sessions and the Rangers. Uh, Joe Ranzetti became a uh, arranger and uh, you know guitar player in New York, playing on songs like Bobby Hebb's Sunny and Ranging Doubleach Pumpkin Pie by Jane Techniques, Key Sign 8.6, uh, and also you know uh, a couple of guys like uh, you know Joe Macko, who is a bass player for uh, Cameo Parkway. He left, 
and he became uh, a, a bass player for records like Lemberry 2023, Bob Dylan's Linger Rolling Stone, and Silence Silence by Simon Garfunkel. So, um, and Bobby Gregg did the same thing. He left and he became, he played drums in Lemberry's 123, Key Sign 8.6. Uh, you know, uh, Bobby Hebb's, uh, he, uh, he wasn't on Bobby Hebb's, it was Al Rogers, but, you know, uh, he was, you know, he became one of the main principal guys in New York in the mid, mid to late 60s. And, uh, you know, he was a very, very uh, talented drummer. And he started out playing on Cameron Parker records. Well, he later on to play on Simon and Garfunkel, Sound of Silence, and Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. So that's where those Cameron Parkway musicians ended up after the Cameron Parkway label folded. They took the two-hour train ride to New York and they settled down there. And that's where they did the rest of their sort of, uh, you know, where they where they spent after most of the time after Cameron Parkway closed the label. So, yeah, um, and it's really interesting how someone like Joe Macko, who is a bass player for, you know, twist records and dance records, winds up playing on Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan, one of the first big hate records of a massive success in the pop charts. And The Sound of Silence by Simon Garfunkel, such a huge, huge record that is so not, and so complete polar opposite of what uh, Chubby Checker and Bobby Ray Dalton, those guys were putting out. So. And, you know, Bobby Rardell left Cameron Parkway to go to Capitol Records. So some of these guys, you know, took off and did other things. But, um, yeah, so that was the first part of the, the Sound of Philadelphia. And then there's a whole thing about, you know, how, you know, some of the guys who are in the, Cam, you know, Cameron Parkway House Band who are playing Orleans Records by Kenny Gim- Laura Kenny Gimling and Huff. And they, and the, the Cameron Parkway released one more record called Kenny Kisses 81, big original hit. And that sounded like Martha Reeves and Vanilla's and Lily Broom. But has, there's a whole other story about how, you know, the second part of the Philadelphia saga, which is the whole Philly sound thing. But I've covered that pretty uh, good in depth as far as that is concerned in other episodes of my podcast. So I'm just going to stop there. But that's sort of the beginning of the Philadelphia sound. It started with Cameron Parkway and then Lily went on. It became the Philadelphia international thing with Gamble Huff and Tom Bell. But that was a little bit later. But. Some of the guys who were in Cameo Parkway, the Cameo Parkway crew playing on Orleans Records, they didn't want to play, uh, you know, for like the Intruders and the Stylistics and the Spinners and the Delphonics and groups like that. But, I mean, really, the start of it was, um, oh, I should mention this, uh, the the engineer on a lot of those records, his name is Joe Tarsha. Joe Tarsha became, uh, was the main engineer for Cameo Parkway. Uh, he became someone that was also the engineer for all those Gamble and Huff records for Philadelphia International. He was, so he started at Camden Parkway, and then he went over to Philadelphia International. And then Joe, Joe Wizard was another brilliant recording engineer for Philadelphia at that time. He was he started out, actually, as, as an assistant engineer, Joe, Joe, Joe Tarsha, in the 60s. And Joe Wizard later went on to actually produce Earth, Wind, and Fire in the 70s. And that's pretty cool. And uh, he also, you know, he also produced Boss Gags and some other artists. And in the 60s, he produced, um, you know, The Love and Spoonful and The Turtles. So that's pretty cool. And he started out as an engineer for Cameo Parkway. So that kind of that kind of talks about some of the recording engineers who were doing stuff from back then. And the other thing is that in the early days, it was two and three track. They did everything live and then they kind of did some overdubbing later. But that's sort of, I talked about that in my other podcast. So you kind of get the idea. But anyways... So that includes this week's episode. 
So yeah, um, Len Berry was actually an artist for Cameo Parkway. He was on, he was in Devels. He left and he went to New York and he became a hit artist in his own right with One Two Three, and Like a Baby and some other songs. And uh, yeah, I mean, as you can see, what what a lot of these Cameo Parkway uh, musicians did is that, and Jimmy Wisner too. He actually was the arranger on One Two Three, and he also arranged songs like The Rain of the Park and other things by the Castles, and I think were learned by Tom James Chandels. So, as you can see, like the you know the the musicians when when they worked right up in Philadelphia, they they went to New York and became you know they continued to do a lot of the same things they were doing in New York. I mean, they were doing in Philadelphia. They they took them back. They they took the two hour train 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 ride to go to New York, and uh, you know and this there was kind of a dead period in Philadelphia. In, uh, in 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 the in the mid in the mid sixties, with the exception of "Are You Ready?" I mean, "Yes, I'm Ready" by Barb Barb Mason, which was released on Arctic label, but you know, and then then later on, there's Philadelphia International. I talked about that before in another episode, so I'll you know, save that. But anyway, so um, that concludes part two of episode number one hundred and eighty-two. I'm a sixty music podcast, the Millennial Throwback Machine. I am Sam Limbs, and still no updates on the album, on the EP yet. I'm still waiting to hear the final mixes. Hopefully you'll hear them this week. I haven't heard them yet, but I'll let you know as soon as I do. And yeah, so, but like I said before, if you want to listen to those songs, uh, and also I decided this too. If you subscribe to the pre-inscription version of my podcast, I'll, 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 uh, I'll do one song. I'll send you one song from the EP. That's it. That's all you're going to get. And then... Also, um, uh, you, another thing you can do is please go subscribe to the pre-inscription version of this podcast because I'll send you one song on upcoming EP if you do that. And uh, also, another thing you can do is you know please go and go listen to those interviews. They're really really fascinating. There's a lot of good information there from a lot of these guys. And I think my next one is going to come up soon with the part two with Don Derman. So please go check that out. And also, you know, definitely check out, uh, you know, if you, if you really liked my analysis in this week's song, or, sorry, if you if you learned a lot of really fascinating information about Cami Parkway, you never knew anything about it and by this label before, and you learned a lot, and you're on my age, you never even heard of this gr- label before, uh, please email me at samltbullyhackler.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies, and Definitely check out the Eat Last EP put out last year, Turquoise Apricot, and the other one's coming out really, really soon. I'm going to release some singles from that first before I do that, but please go listen to my last EP. Really appreciate it if you can if you can let me know your thoughts on that. Um, you know the the uh, you can do that by emailing me at samltbully@icloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartolies. And everything you can do, please, I would appreciate it if you can check out the official uh, Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast. So you'll find all the songs we've talked about on the show so far, including some of the ones I mentioned in the interview episodes. Please go do that and email me if you have any so- ideas for songs to talk about next on my podcast that I haven't yet. Uh, you know, if you have any suggestions slash songs to cover next, please do email those ideas to me at cmltblade.com. And please do. Also, check out uh, the two interviews I did last year with Honk Magazine Shot LA. Hope to do more interviews soon, but I think I'm going to have to get some help with getting some publicity on some more interviews. Uh, please, so check those, check that out. You can do that by, uh, you know, definitely let me know what you think of those interviews. You can do that by email me at samltwilliacloud.com. If you also want to meet up with me personally, if you're based in LA after reading those interviews, please definitely want to meet, meet you if you're a fan of this podcast, especially if you're a millennial or Gen Z. But, anyways, please go do that. 
Um, you can also reach out to me on Instagram and TikTok at IHerOldies. And do check out the official Redbull merch store for this podcast. There will be able to find all the all this really cool merchandise that is very specific toward this podcast. Um, you know, would love if you can check out those merch that merch store. If you can buy something from it, you'd help me contribute to this podcast. You really would. But anyways, love if you can do that. Um, definitely let me know what you think of those merch items and logo of each uh, price of each other in the store. Um, you can do that via email me at samltwilliamicalove.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. But yeah, so. Yeah, no updates for the EP yet, but I'll keep you guys posted as soon as I hear those final mixes, and then I'm very excited to hear them. It's going to be so, so good. Yeah. So I'll definitely keep you guys posted when I do that, and, uh, you know, I'll let you guys know what the first single that comes out. Um, you know, so yeah. So I'm Sam Williams, and thank you guys for joining me. Oh, by the way. Check out the official music video for Keeper in My Back Pocket. The link to that is also in the description of this episode of this podcast. I shot another music video for Turquoise Apricot. Hopefully I'll put that out soon. Kind of waiting on the final mix for the re-recorded version of Turquoise Apricot. So I'm still waiting on that. But um, definitely when you're thinking of that last music video, you can do that via email me at samltwilliacolet.com. Uh, you can also reach out to me on Instagram and TikTok at iheartolies. Yeah, so um, I'm Sam Williams, and thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode and podcast. The millennial, the millennial throwback machine. Until next week, please. Keep things groovy.